because maybe you can relate to me. It'll help you understand my week a little bit. If you're someone who uses a checklist or a to-do list or some form of that, um, maybe nod your head to me so that I know I'm not alone. I see some nods. That's good. Um, I just want to tell you, I'd be lost if I didn't have my to-do list. I use this program called Remember the Milk. It's um, one of those things that, well, helps me remember the milk. I guess that's where it got its name. I've had some mini celebrations over my life, little triumphs and periods of triumphs. I started out, um, my to-do list looked like this, and it was like a post-it note folded in half. And I would write the things, and the reason I folded it in half because I found that if you didn't, it would stick to stuff in your pocket. Um, and so I would take these with me, and that would be my like, to-do list for that day. Well, I started out with that, and then um, I upgraded when I was in college to a PDA, and I thought, man, that was good stuff. Now it was electronic, and I could have a record of all of my to-do items. And so I moved from that to a PDA, and then um, beyond that, I, the, the point where my phone and my PDA combined, that was a good point in my life. That triumphed for me because then instead of carrying two devices, I only had to carry one. And that just made it easier because even without my to-do list, a lot of times I would remember my phone but not my PDA. And now I have it where this to-do list will now synchronize so that I can see it on my computer. I can see it on my phone. I can get uh, reminders sent to me. I have a fantastic to-do list. You know, the problem with that is if you don't look at it, you still don't get things done. <laughs> this week, I got so overwhelmed with a bunch of stuff going on that I said, I just got to stop looking at the to-do list and focus on the sermon. And I did. And I forgot to do a lot of stuff. Um, I forgot to do something for Joetta this week, and so I get a phone call, and I'm like, oh, I forgot to do that. I forgot to pay my car payment. I mean, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> Luckily, there was no late uh, fee for that. That was good. But most of you know, if you're a to-do list kind of person, how easy it is to literally like order your life by that, and if you, you might be lost without it. Most of us know, at the very least, what it's like to depend on a list, whether that's a to-do list that organizes your life or one where you go to the grocery store. And so we're, we're a culture that's very used to lists and organizing ourselves by that. And so that being the case, I think it's easy for us to bring that mindset into our relationship with God. And today we're going to talk a little bit about that, and I just want to have you ponder this question. I'm going to throw it out there for you to think about. But what happens when we bring this checklist mentality into our thinking about God? We're going to think about that. Let me pray, and then we'll dig into Scripture. God, as we look into your word, our prayer is simply that you would reveal your nature to us, that your word would become active, God, because you are active and that through the reading of Scripture, we might in turn hear your voice. Tune our hearts to hear the tone of your voice. Tune out the congregation to the tone of mine, that they might hear the tone of yours. We pray through Christ. Amen. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2 today. And so if you have a Bible, I'll just invite you to turn there. We'll be referencing that off and on. It would be helpful if it were open for you there. Hebrews chapter 2. And Scott's been digging us through Hebrews for a few weeks. And um, so when Scott said, hey, it's Youth Sunday, um, here's the passage that you'll be going to. It was really long. Last week he gets to preach about like four verses. And this week I've got like the rest of chapter 2. Um, so he gets the first four verses, I get the rest of chapter 2. It's a huge passage. 
But I want you to ponder a couple questions, and it's kind of the sermon title there. I think it will help us lead us through. I'm going to take us on a two-part journey today. And the first part uh, of that journey, well, actually, there's three parts, and Scott did number one. We're doing two and three. So the first part, really, is that um, Jesus is divine. Uh, we talked about that in chapter one, that uh, Jesus is above the angels, and it really emphasizes this idea that Jesus is divine. And so I just want to phrase that by saying that is God with us. And so we're going to do two and three, and so the sermon title really is point two and three of that, is that Jesus is a man like us and the man for us. The reason we're doing two and three, and Scott really did one, is because chapters one and two are really just one literary unit. They don't really have a division. We see that in our scripture. But it's one big unit, and it's talking about the superiority of Jesus over the Old Testament revelation, uh, the superiority of Jesus over angels. And then the new emphasis we're going to get in chapter two is Jesus' connection with his people. So we're going to see that Jesus is identified with people, and and as a result, then, um, we will get to share in his glory. And so what we're seeing kind of here in our passage, we're seeing how man has kind of fallen out out of his place that God created him, and Jesus rightfully puts us back into the place of preeminence over creation. And so Jesus is the ideal man and our perfect example, and today we're going to look at how Jesus is a man like us and a man for us. Can't think of that without what Scott has already preached. So if you missed where Scott has come from, I want to summarize really quickly that this idea that that God has come to be with us, that the divine has come to be with humanity. And it's really difficult, and and I'm going to illustrate this in a minute with a video, it's really difficult for us to pair those two things together, to pair the divinity and the humanity together. It's really difficult. And it'd be even harder because we're kind of phasing this over a couple um, sermons where Scott really talked about amplifying the divinity of Christ, and we're talking about amplifying the humanity of Christ today. And so I want to introduce you to this video. There's a guy named Dr. N.T. Wright, and he's going to talk about one of the biggest hang-ups that evangelicals have, and it really has to do with the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. So watch this, and you'll get a better understanding. Well, here's a first question we have for you. Um, What do you think is the biggest misunderstanding that Western 21st century evangelical Christians have about Jesus? Um, And how does this misunderstanding stunt our faith and our witness? It's hard to quantify different levels of misunderstanding, but one thing I meet constantly and have done for many years is the idea that because Jesus was divine, which sort of comes with the turf of who we are, we believe this stuff about Jesus being divine, Therefore, he couldn't have had any questions in his mind. He couldn't have struggled with vocation. He couldn't actually have meant it when he said, maybe there's another way in Gethsemane. And I think one of the key things to remember is that in the great formulations of faith in the early church, um, the humanity of Jesus is every bit as important as, as his divinity. And that's not just a clever balancing act. That's actually a very profound insight on the part of the earliest Christians, that whatever you mean by divinity, you have to make 
sure it doesn't, as it were, trump his humanity. Because, of course, the divinity of Jesus is not some abstract divinity. It's the divinity of Israel's God, who is the God who brings in his kingdom and does so with compassion and love and all that. And the humanity of Jesus is the humanity of Israel's representative. And Israel is the people who goes through all this suffering and all this tribulation. And somehow God vindicates them. And these two come rushing together in Jesus. What I see in so much evangelical um, thinking still is a kind of nervousness about admitting that any of that might really be the case. And that prohibits one from actually engaging with what the Gospels are all about. seeing in Hebrews chapter 2 in particular is is the emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. And I want to tell you right off the bat, if we don't go ahead and dive full force into what it means for Jesus to be human, then we're going to miss what Hebrews chapter 2 is really about. We're going to miss that point. The reason really that verse 9 identifies Jesus as a little lower than the angels, just as Verses 6 and 7 identify us as a little lower than the angels. It's because that's intended to parallel us with Jesus. It's intended to say that Jesus became like us. Um, And so the parallel there is intentional. And then all the way towards the end in verse 17, it says that Jesus had to become like us in every way. And verse 18 indicates that not only like us in humanity, but also fully tempted and fully tested. The uniqueness of the gospel is that Jesus became a man like us, fully divine and fully human. And those two come crashing together in Jesus. And the result of that collision gives Christianity a gospel that is unlike any other. I want to submit to you a truth today. I'm going to back this up with the second video, and it's the last video I'll show you. But the truth that I want to submit to you is that all of us as mankind, not just us in Greenville, but all of us as across the entire globe, have one checklist item in common. We are all in some way seeking the divine. We are all in some way searching Whether it's for the divine or something greater than ourselves, we're searching for this connection to something bigger. Sometimes that search begins out of this deep longing for more. Sometimes it begins out of this disconnect. that I feel as if I'm not really connected to, well, the the video is going to say connected to the universe. Sometimes it's this feeling of emptiness that causes us to search. Sometimes it's a feeling of not knowing how to deal with my guilt that causes us to search. But the one thing we share in common is that we all seek to connect ourselves with something that's greater than we are. And so here's a little clip from uh, a video called The Case Case for Faith. While the theological differences between the world's major religions are glaring, individual believers, be they Muslim, Christian, Hindu, Buddhist, or Jew, share a universal need. They have each experienced what the philosopher Pascal called a God-shaped vacuum in the heart which cannot be filled by any created thing. 
In dealing with religious studies at the graduate level, uh, one thing we, we were pretty certain of, scholars across the board, that, that maybe human beings ought not to be called homo sapiens, you know, the, the wise man, but rather homo religiosus, right, the, the religious man. Well, why is that? Because no matter where you go, no matter where you go, there is this religious upwelling. Human beings have a sense, deep down and across the board, that they are in some way not right with the universe. What they're really sensing is they're not right with God. They sense their guilt, alienation, separation from God. We hunger for a purpose and a meaning in life that goes beyond us. We need empowerment to live the kind of life we know we should, but we can on our own. Jesus' identification of these problems and his solution to them is more profound than any other religion. This is why Christianity makes so much sense, because it offers a solution to the genuine problem. And it doesn't sugarcoat it, it doesn't candy coat it, it doesn't look past the real problem, it identifies it for what it is. Hebrews 2, verse 6 through 8. But there is a place where someone has testified. Let me time out real quick. That's not like, oops, I forgot where this is said. He knows that comes from Psalm 8. That's a Hebrew uh, kind of phrasing for just saying the entire Old Testament was inspired by God. That's not a, oops, don't know where this is from. That's a, I know this is from Psalm 8, but I want to identify the entire scripture as coming from God. So let's go back. Verse 6, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. So at the end of verse 8, the writer of Hebrews voices this universal problem that we wrestle with as humanity. At present, right now, from where I'm sitting, I just don't see that. I don't see the fact that God's created us like that. I don't see that God has created us so wonderfully If God really is such a good creator, if God really does look at man and say man is is exalted above all other creation, why don't we see that as such now? There's this disconnection. And it's this disconnection that drives us to search. And I'm going to submit to you today that the connection between the divine and the human is in Christ, and it lies in the fact that he is both divine and human at the exact same time but there is a disconnect that is present our writer really hits it right on the on the money here in verse 8 and it causes us to look here's a quote from the video i love the way they phrase this it says jesus's identification with these problems and his solution to them is more profound than any other religion this is why christianity makes so much sense because it offers a solution to the genuine problem. Folks, if you believe that, you're believing in something that no other religion or set of beliefs offers, because you're believing in Christ and his identification with this universal problem that we all share. And that 
is good news, right? That's good news. And I think it's great news, but I found a problem. And it's, this, there's a problem with that, and it's burdened my heart in the most unique way this week. And my hope today is that I can share that burden with you. Let's look at verse 9. It says, but we do see Jesus. Verse 8, we don't see it as such. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus. That's nice and pretty. You can tie a bow on that. You can go home. You can be real thankful, and we'll all be real happy. But this is where it starts to get deep. And if you're um, a swimmer, then you know in a pool there's always this rope, and it kind of defines the line between the shallow end and the deep end. And you know there are a lot of kids who just like to hang out at the rope. And they watch what all the people in the deep end do. And I'm just going to tell you this morning, some of you are going to hang out the rope and some of you are going to go in the deep end. And my invitation to you is I want to invite you to go into the deep end today. I want to invite you to take this to a, little, to a deeper level because that, as it is, sounds so nice and pretty. There's this problem, Jesus' solution, thank you, God, amen. We'll go home and we'll all feel good. And that's okay, but that's the shallow end. I want to invite you to go further because I believe for far too long we've watered down our theology in such a way that we're not able to fully grasp what God is teaching us in Hebrews 2. And we're not alone. Scholars believe, I saw in commentary after commentary this week, scholars believe that even the people who are translating and copying the first text tried to water down what this passage says. In verse 9, you may have a note in your Bible, and it it indicates that there could be a different way to translate that in verse 9. Rather than by the grace of God, it might be apart from God. It's a difference that isn't simply like a letter change. It's a different word in the Greek language. And some scholars believe that that was an intentional change. Why? To avoid God's wrath. And certainly that's not a new thought for us. We live in a church culture that rarely, if ever, speaks about God's wrath. But here, it must be considered because of what we see in verse 10. It was fitting for God. In other words, it was right with the character and the ways of God for whom and through whom all things exist in bringing children to glory, that the pioneer of their salvation might be made perfect through suffering. We cannot ignore God's wrath and understand what Hebrews is teaching us today. We see that Christ was made perfect through suffering. And the burden that I've carried on my heart this week is what it took to pay for our sin. What God has revealed and what He has placed on my heart is that the full divinity crashing into the full humanity of Jesus combined with the weight of the sin of mankind creates this shockwave that should pulverize our hearts. And listen, if you don't fully understand what Jesus has taken on, what he willingly has taken on, then you're going to end up with something that is not the gospel. 
We're too quick to talk about God being with us, to be God being kind of like us, and we don't spend enough time talking about what it means for God to become the man for us. In brainstorming this week, one church member, they said it this way, we don't find out how great our sin is by looking at our sin, but by looking at what it took to pay for our sin. What that saying is, if I looked at my sins and I listed them on the paper and I said, wow, that's a long list of sins, I really understand now God's salvation. How does that compare to someone who has a longer list than I? How does that compare to someone who has a shorter list than I? We don't understand what it took to... We don't understand sin when we start to count our own sins. We understand sin when we see what it costs to pay the penalty of sin. Because of our transgressions, we alienated ourselves from God. We have completely separated ourselves. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. And I want to tell you something about God's character. He is just. That doesn't change. That doesn't depend on the person. God is just. And we can talk about a loving God all we want, but if sin is not paid for, the result is death. The result is separation from God. Verse 11, if you really read that, gives you some incredible insight. It said, for those who are sanctified are now brothers and sisters to Jesus. If sin is not paid for, it is not going to, God's love is not going to be able to balance that. Sin must be paid for. Propitiation is a theological word that means the satisfaction of God's wrath. Propitiation is this theological term that talks about God's wrath being satisfied. And I want to kind of tell you that this word uh, propitiation is not synonymous with God's love. They are not the same thing. God is love and God is just and God loved sinners while they were still sinning. Atonement or satisfaction of wrath That doesn't increase God's love for us. One who is atoned is not loved more than one who is not. Atonement does not increase God's love for us. It doesn't awaken the divine love for humanity. It only renders it consistent with his justice. It is only rendered consistent with his justice. And it is when God's love and and God's justice have been, have been rendered consistent, when the wrath has been satisfied, that is when salvation takes place through Christ. The pinnacle of that moment happens in Christ. If we ignore God's justice, our understanding of salvation is going to be incomplete because the power that lies within our passage today is that Christ has come to bear the full wrath of God on our behalf. Christ became the man for us. N.T. Wright, in the first video we watched, said that we often get so caught up in the divinity of, of Jesus 
that we think he couldn't have possibly been tempted. He couldn't have really questioned, was it possible for him to to have another way? A lot of times we'll even think that it's not possible for him to experience the pain. We'll find ourselves diminishing the fact that he even suffered. Well, because he was divine. It must have been easier in some way. It must have been easier because he knew what it was all about. And we'll diminish the humanity because we like to focus on the divinity. Jesus knew the pain that was awaiting him. He knew the suffering. And I don't, I don't think he was afraid of nails through his hands. Because he was not the first to be nailed to a cross, and he certainly was not the last. I don't think he was afraid of that. And believe me, that's gruesome. I'm not volunteering for that. It's something that is horrible pain. I think Jesus knew the weight that sin was going to bring. And that's what he was fearful of. That is where he said, is there another way than to experience the entire wrath of God against sin? That's what he was nervous about. And that's the burden that God has placed over my heart this week. When I dwell on the innocent son bearing the full wrath of the father... For my sake, my heart's crushed. Our passage in Hebrews goes to great lengths to make sure that we understand the full humanity of Christ because the power of the cross is Christ being the man for us. So here we are in Hebrews, and it's a really, really deep book. We have a divine God who has come to be with us in Jesus. And Jesus, fully divine, superior to all, becoming fully human. He came to be a man like us, that he might become the man for us. And I've had so much fun digging deep into Hebrews. It's been a blessing to me. And I want to tell you, there is some awesome and challenging stuff here. But I want to bring you back to the beginning, start out talking about checklists, to-do lists. Because I want you to understand how this mentality can be brought into our view of salvation. When we view salvation as an item on a checklist, we're going to miss all of that rich stuff. And yet our churches are full of people who came this morning, this hour, to check off an item on their to-do list. Did you come today seeking to just check off worship for the week? Did you come today seeking to just check off Bible reading? To just check off singing? Maybe God's revealing to you today that there is a depth far beyond the shallow end of the pool. And he's asking for you to come swim with him, to go deep. Maybe it's time to take a step beyond where you're normally used to being. To no longer sit at the edge of the deep end and to peer in. But we're inviting you to go deep with us at First Christian Church. We are not going to hang in the shallow end. Far too many churches do and are content to stay there. We are a church that will not water down the power of God's Word. Honestly, I spent so much, the majority of my time this week 
simply meditating on what this passage had to say. Really, I mean, it's like 90% of my time in sermon prep was that. Writing was about 10. It's crazy how short my writing time was compared to my time of meditation. I have felt throughout that entire time of meditation this week an immense burden to worship. It's caused me to anticipate this hour so great in a way that I, I literally woke up last night out of a dead sleep in anticipation for worship. I wish it happened every Saturday night. It doesn't. I am in complete and total awe of what God has done for me. And so with a humble heart, today I come before my Lord and I worship. My invitation is simply that you would join me in worshiping our Lord. But perhaps you've never called Jesus Lord. Perhaps you don't know that deep, humbling, and yet awe-inspiring feeling of seeing someone who has completely taken the wrath of God on himself so that I don't have to. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe today it's time for you to name Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior for the first time. Or maybe today it's time for you simply to stop hanging out in the shallow end. And to dig deep. Maybe you've never opened up the Word of God and asked Him to speak to you and to reveal deep truths to you. Scott has invited us to read through Hebrews on a weekly basis. And I want to tell you, if you do that and you don't just gloss over, you're going to be finding yourself flailing in an ocean of depth. And you're going to be grabbing for commentaries and for wisdom from from people of old who have been there before us. But I want to tell you that the pioneer of our salvation, Jesus Christ, will lead you through that. We believe that. That His Holy Spirit will guide you in your reading. And I invite you, whether it's for the first time to name Jesus as Lord, or whether it's for you to say, I want to be a part of a church that's going to take God's Word seriously. I want to be a part of this family at First Christian Church. I just want to extend an invitation to you this morning that if that's for you, that you would come as we stand and as we sing together.